Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms now wide. If we're gonna feel, we feel no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk in lions. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mornings with Carmen on this Wednesday, the 15th of June. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for this morning, been filling in all week, and will continue to do so through, through Friday as Carmen is away on vacation. I've just loved starting the day with all of you as part of the Faith Radio family, fixing our eyes on Jesus yet again, being people of an entirely different kind of kingdom, even as we operate within the kingdoms of this world. Good morning, Paul Perot. Always great to see you in studio as well, handling the board, the sound, the music. The conversation choices of the day. Really looking forward to our first one here this morning. We're going to be talking with Tim Yearsley from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And boy, it's going to be a good conversation. Well, it's something that I know is dear to your heart, and that is living more of a uh, whole life gospel. I mean, you've talked about that in so many ways, about having the living out and having a better story, better narrative than the world has, which comes right out of God's design. It, it, and we're going to we're going to circle around John Stott as a, as a person who really did manifest that that that, that full-blooded Christianity where it wasn't just about making a decision for Jesus or getting saved or getting into heaven when you die. He he really was a person who embodied mm-hmm. somebody who gave his life to Jesus and was a, was a disciple in this world that really altered pretty much everything in terms of uh, of a lot of the conversations these last 50 years. I think he's terribly underappreciated. He's one of those names that I've heard a lot about over the years. I've studied, I've come across his sermons, I've read his books, but he just is somehow on the outskirts too often. But boy, the way he lived his life really did mm-hmm. demonstrate this this full-blooded discipleship. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there, in terms of uh, how we act within the world, Ben Holson, uh, the program director here at Faith Radio, sent me an email uh, about how Christians are meant to disrupt and and meant to live a different kind of way of life in this world. And he was going back into early Christianity. And he was talking about the DNA of early Christians and, and how they lived. And, and it just, as a way to introduce this conversation with Tim, too, uh, one of the things that I'd never heard of, Paul, maybe you've heard of this okay. before, was that the way in which the early Christians treated unwanted babies. I oh, mean, I've heard the story, you know, yes. Yeah, clearly, and in, in there's so much talk about what's going to happen in our country, in the United States, about Roe versus Wade and abortions and, and unwanted children. And and. This is uh, maybe some of the people as part of the Faith Radio family have heard this. Maybe not. I'll read it now. I I know I hadn't before. So that Christians took in unwanted babies. If people had babies they didn't want, Roman law permitted them to leave newborns in the fields just outside of the city. Usually those babies didn't last long because the wild animals would get them. But historians note that one group of people refused to abandon their infants. Christians. In fact, they would go out to the fields and take other people's abandoned infants in because they believed that every one of them was created in the image of God and was a person that Jesus had died for. What, what, just, uh, just mm-hmm. the appreciation of the sanctity of human life. This is just one demonstration of how Christians can live so differently and radically different in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of the secular writers of that time who were antagonistic toward Christianity, but they were still confounded by the level of love they had for each other and for their communities, for baby. I mean, 
it blew their minds. They had no categories for that. Yeah, I was with a young person this weekend who was just getting started in vocational ministry, and, and he said that today there are about 400,000 churches in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then he gave me this stat, and it's related to what I just read. He said there are also about 400,000 foster children in the United States. Now, I'm not a math guy, but but uh, <laughs> but I can do the math there that I think the ratio, the way that works is that if every one of the 400,000 churches simply took in every one, one uh, one child, uh, then we would have so many uh, children cared for as part mm-hmm. of a different kind of relational network. And foster parents are doing unbelievably good work, but it is really difficult sometimes to deal with the state and the systems to, to really raise foster kids the way we like. Churches could do this work starting yesterday. Hey, there would be no fo- need for a foster care system like we have right now because it would be taken care of, or at least, well, what's become of things. And, and again, that, that would be kind of interesting because it's not just one family doing it. Maybe one family is the parent family, but the whole congregation coming around them. Yeah, what, what an, a radical, non-conforming idea. We're going to continue this kind of conversation up next in just a moment with Tim Yearsley for the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, circling around John Stott as an example of just this way of life. Just about 10 minutes past the top of the hour here on the 15th of June. Delighted to be joined by Tim Yearsley of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find their work at L-I-C-C, that's L-I-C-C, dot org, dot U-K. Good morning, Tim. Hey, Peter. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I love to have the conversation. You are just outside of London, from what I understand, in Nottingham. Yeah, well, in the UK, Nottingham's a long way from London, but in somewhere like the US, two hours isn't very far at all. Yeah, two hours is a commute for some people one way in the United States, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. Well, I appreciate yeah. uh, you chiming in on this. I know that John Stott is somebody that is one of those names, again, with which I think many people are familiar, but probably don't know the extent to which he was radically nonconformist in, in, as he practiced his Christianity in the world. So tell us a little bit about the articles that are up and, and what you see in them. Yeah, for sure. Well, John Stott founded LICC in 1982, and I think, as you've already highlighted, was um, kind of deceptively radical in his theology and preaching. Um, He's often thought of as a kind of staunch conservative evangelical type, but there was this real desire to help and equip Christians live out their discipleship in every square inch of their lives. So particularly in their workplaces, but also in a way that interacted with the culture that they found themselves in. So John Stott founded LICC uh, in the early 80s, and LICC has been growing from that point for the past 40 years, trying to run with that vision and to envision and equip Christians to live out their discipleship in every single area of life, taking Sunday into Monday so that people are as alert to God's presence with them uh, at their work desks as they are in the pews on a Sunday morning. So that's that's why we're here and that's what we're about. Well, I love that phrase that he that describes how he did his work in the world, as you just described. And there's a phrase that uh, is double listening. And uh, mm-hmm. why don't you just describe for us what double listening is? Because John did not try to extract himself from the world. He fully engaged with the world, but with, with a, a mind towards heaven and a mind towards the people around him. Yes, absolutely. Double listening is one of the kind of trademark John Stottisms that we've that we've uh, stuck to and, and run forward with. So the idea there is that actually Christians 
um, needs to have the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, to quote another theologian. But the idea is that we are having our thinking and our speaking and our choices informed by our reading of the Bible. But also just to be aware of the fact that we live in a culture that has its own story and we don't want to necessarily make the gospel relevant, but our job is to demonstrate its relevance. And so paying attention to the world, listening to the world as we listen to the word of God and bringing those two together in conversation is a key job of all Christians. And actually, um, in recent years, LITC has taken that one step further and we've um, developed triple listening, which is the idea that we need to also bring in the community of faith, the church into that conversation. And we need to be listening to the stories and the language of the people who are in our churches on Sunday mornings um, uh, as they're gathered, but also throughout the week as they're scattered so that we are paying attention to their lived experience, as well as the culture that they that they find themselves in and the Bible uh, from which they draw their faith as well. So triple listening is what we're playing with now. I love that last concept because I think it's really important to note that so many of the current and maybe previous ways of organizing as the church in which you have a staff full of people, maybe some shepherds, some some paid staff as well, they tend to be the ones that are seen as those who are listening or hearing from God, and then they bring that word to the congregation. And there gets to be, I think, this unintentional but unfortunate split between the paid members of the staff and the rest of the community in the church, but you're describing more of a communal discernment that has to do with what's going on in the world uh, is seeing that and, and people in the body are just as effective at doing that as as the paid staff might be. Yes, absolutely. And this is straight out of Ephesians 4, isn't it? That um, that Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for ministry in all of their lives. And uh, one pastor that I know gave us this image, which was uh, a shift for him had occurred when he realized actually the his congregation didn't come to kind of cheer him on on a Sunday. It was more his role to be in the stands at a football stadium, for example, cheering on his congregation as they play the match on the pitch. So it's, it's definitely a bit of an upside down way of thinking about our traditional models of church and uh, equipping Christians for discipleship in world life. Yeah, and John, also John Stott, as we are taking some lessons from him, and, and we're talking with Tim Yearsley of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Again, you can find the work at LICC. Dot org dot uk and Tim John Stott as he engaged with the world, he tried to listen to a wide variety uh, of demographic representation, meaning that he didn't just stick with people who looked like him and sounded like him. He really heard from a lot of different parts of this world, and I, I can't think of something more important today in, in these multicultural settings in which we find ourselves to take people's understandings and views and experiences of God seriously, as long as it remains anchored in Scripture and in the story. But, but the way you grow up and the diversity that we've experienced does alter things, and it gives us a different prism through which to view this. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's no more true than in the emerging generations. So we know that millennials and Gen Z are the most kind of ethnically, culturally, uh, even religiously diverse generation that the world has yet seen, or certainly that the West has yet seen. And so if we're not listening to the variety of different voices that make up these generations, we're only going to be shouting into our own echo chamber. In the UK, that tends to be kind of white, middle-class Christians, <laughs> churches led by men. And um, it's it, that's not a kind of Christianity. It's not a church. It's not a gospel that is appealing to this next generation. So yes, I totally agree. We need to be 
listening to all all cultures uh, within our culture, the microcultures within our macroculture, um, everything from paying attention to the films that we're watching and the music we're listening to, through to, as you say, those everyday conversations with people in their own context as they figure out what discipleship looks like wherever they are, whether they're uh, a barista making coffees or, or a barrister in the courtroom. Um, all of those stories are worth listening to as we figure out what discipleship actually looks like and as people discover more of how to live their lives as if Jesus were them. Yeah, I think you're right. The, the next generation is hungering for that. And so when we step away, we're going to step away for just a minute, Tim, and when we come back, let's continue that part of the conversation because you are doing a lot of work currently in that 18 to 35-year-old age category. Their expression of faith, what they care about, might sound and look different than previous generations, but it still is anchored in, the, in this kingdom way of life. Tim Yearsley is with us from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. We'll be back in about 90 seconds with more. Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen on the 15th of June. This is Wednesday morning. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in. We've been talking with Tim Yearsley of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, talking about the life of John Stott as a way to springboard into a conversation about what it means to be a whole life disciple. And Tim, younger generations are certainly longing for something deeper than sort of these thin gospels that we uh, maybe in in a good-natured and good-hearted way presented for them to make the gospel accessible. But I think we can fairly say that there's been at least a, a mild, if not major, failure of discipleship as well along the way. Yeah, I have to say I completely agree. And the research that we've been looking at bears that out as well. Um, you might be familiar with the um, report that Barna and World Vision put together called The Connected Generation, looking at um, faith in the lives of millennials and Gen Z. And in the UK, I was, I've been looking at the UK-specific report, but there's different country-specific reports. The statistics are quite shocking, really. We know that 74% of uh, Christians raised in a Christian home have dropped out of regular church engagement by the time that they're 35. And that raises some serious questions, not least, uh, why? Why are they dropping out? And uh, we looked at some other research by uh, a lady called Ruth Perrin, based in Durham in the UK. She's been tracking the faith lives of millennials um, in her part of the world. And she uh, confirmed what we suspected, which was that young adults aren't necessarily leaving the church because they think the gospel isn't true. They're leaving because they think the gospel isn't relevant to their lives. And actually, when we look at what happens in the lives of the 26 percent of Christians who do stay around, engage with church and the way they describe their faith and their discipleship, we see that actually um, a sense of vocation, vocational discipleship is absolutely key. So for us as Christian leaders and thinkers and radio hosts, uh, we, we've got to be hosting this conversation around how our faith and our discipleship connects to what we do every single day and brings a sense of meaning and purpose uh, into our work, whether that's paid work or, or not. Um, there's all different kinds of work, but just joining those dots between what we say we believe and how we actually live. That seems to be the key. And at LITC, we call that whole life discipleship. And that's what we're going after. Yeah. And I think for those of us that have been worried and concerned, understandably so by what you just described, which is young people leaving the church to the extent that they are, I think the encouraging part is that what we're talking about here is not young people leaving the kingdom, not young people not wanting to follow Jesus. They are just simply saying the way the church has expressed itself in these generations has been helpful for many, but we're looking for a new way to express our faith in the world around us because the church, Tim, is not necessarily the institution with the sign and the steeple and the website and the staff. 
and, and gathering on Sunday morning. The church is simply the people of God who are following Jesus, and, and how they organize is going to take a very different shape in the world, and you guys are right on the front end of that. Yes, I totally agree, and I think it demands that we think missiologically about engaging this next generation. So, you know, if we were going overseas to a people group that uh, didn't have our Christian cultural traditions and we were trying to bring the gospel to them, our job would be to think, what are the stories? What is the language? Um, how do these people relate to each other? What's in their culture that resonates with the gospel? And how can we affirm that and uh, and foster gospel communities in these new um people groups um and and to kind of see what happens see what shape the church takes um as it is birthed out of uh doing ministry in that kind of way rather than just perpetuating the models that we've had for the past hundred years which is only going to give us more and more diminishing returns i think so that's that's a really exciting place to play for me this thinking missionally about the next generation and yeah fostering kind of kingdom movements that that um can take the shape of church but also equip young adults to uh, live out the gospel in every single area of their life in a way that uh, makes sense to them and is compelling to their curious friends. Yeah, what you just said, to equip young people to live out the gospel in a compelling way in the world around us. Uh, when we when we think about how we have been gathering historically, Tim, uh, I think about the complexity of what young people are facing in terms of sexuality, in terms of climate, environmental concerns, lack of maybe biblical foundations, religious pluralism, the list goes on and on and on. And so to, to equip them for these things may require, in fact, I would say it demands a different kind of model than just gathering for a 20-minute sermon on a Sunday, have some donuts and coffee and go home again, back to, back to your regular life. I, I don't think that any other vocation in which we would engage in our life uh, would we say that it's sufficient to be an apprentice in that vocation and just only attend to it about 20 minutes a week. We really need some more robust ways to to gather and equip young people. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the areas of experimentation that LICC have been leading on, I think. And one little initiative we have is just called This Time Tomorrow. And it means that maybe once a month or once every two weeks, um, the pastor, the leader of the church invites someone up from their congregation to the front of the church and just asks them, what are you going to be doing this time tomorrow? So Monday morning at 11 a.m., for example. And it just gives the church a chance to hear a different kind of story being told from the front. Here's what it looks like for me, you know, being uh, being a stay at home mum tomorrow or being a school teacher tomorrow or working in the hospital tomorrow or going into the courtroom tomorrow. Here are the challenges and opportunities that I face there. Here's how my faith equips me and helps me to be a disciple of Jesus in that place. And here's how you can pray for me. Just creating a space like this time tomorrow in a regular church service actually can have quite a dramatic shift on a church's culture over time. And it's a really helpful corrective to, um, the, as we've been saying already, the kind of traditional model of church that we've all we've all been a part of enough and are familiar with where, um, you know, the Sunday school teacher is brought up to the front of church and prayed for and can work teaching the Sunday school children. And the fact that she's a teacher teaching 30 children in a classroom for six hours a day, five days a week is never mentioned. That's a balance that we need to correct. And this time tomorrow is just one way that we're learning about how to do that. No, Tim, we just have about 90 seconds left here. Can you think of any story that just pops into your mind about a specific young person in which you've talked about this whole body, this whole life discipleship, where it just really caught fire in them and things began to change? Uh, yes, I can. I can think about my friend Kate, who is a school teacher, 
And uh, Kate said to us, actually, let me just pull this up now, because I'd like to read it to you in her own words. I think it's far more powerful than me trying to guess at what she said. Uh, so our friend Kate, school teacher, uh, teaches French at a secondary school just out, uh, just nearby where I live in Nottingham. And um, she said that, there would be one second, here we are, um, a compartmentalised faith um, that only becomes real on Sundays simply doesn't make sense to me. My work doesn't allow me the time to constantly be at church events, but my work does feel like the place where it's my duty to live out the example of Jesus. And it means the children I teach see in me a model of Jesus, something to emulate if I'm doing it right. Church gives me a cornerstone and a foundational understanding of what it means to be a Christian, but it's in my workplace that I live that out. God gave me the skills and the desire to teach, and I cannot keep him separate from what I do. And I would point to Kate as an example of a Christian young adult who is thriving in her work because mm. she's been able to connect these dots between what she believes and what she does. That is powerful stuff right there, Tim. Boy, I wish we had another hour where we can continue to talk about this, but I love what you're doing. I, I think it's just right on the edge of where we need to head in how we gather as a church. Again, it's Tim Yearsley. One more time, London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find the work at licc.org.uk. Tim, can't wait to catch up again soon. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll take a short break and preview what's coming up in the second half of this first hour of Mornings with Carmen. Well, Paul Perot, I didn't hate that conversation. Uh, that was yeah, brilliant. I was watching you. You're, you're <laughs> mind-blown, eyes bulging you had a great time yeah i was getting all sorts of is spiritually agitated in a really good way because i think he just he was very he was very descriptive of what exactly that i see week in and week out with the young people that i teach to and and how they want to gather together so let it be an encouragement to you faith radio family i know we talk a lot about the troubling trends of young people not wanting to engage with church but i really do think we need to parse that out a little bit more and say that church is not just the building with the institution and the sign and the website and the paid staff and various ministries and coffee and donuts, all of those things may or may not be important. Church is simply the people of God following Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to shine his beautiful light in this world. And how they gather and how they do that is undoubtedly going to shift, but his kingdom is going to remain. Up next, we're going to chat with Ruth Kramer of Mission Network News, and she's got quite a few different headlines from around the world. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today, and we are joined by regular contributor to the show, Ruth Kramer of Mission Network News, who takes us into some of the headlines of which I am not always aware, but are just as important as the ones of which I might be aware. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. How are you? Well, it's great to hear your voice again. I'm doing well and just so appreciate uh, how you cover the news from a global perspective and, and through a Christian lens. And there are certain stories that have had tremendous impact on image-bearing people's lives, but I'm not always aware of them. And one of them was early June. We saw a tremendous explosion in Bangladesh. And uh, I didn't know much about this story. Had it happened in the United States, we would probably still be covering it to, today some some 12 days later. So tell us about this event. On June 3rd, uh, there was a container depot in Chittagong, Bangladesh, that went up. Uh, it actually was just, it started as a fire, um, but because there had been some lax um, 
regulations uh, on on labeling containers and just having things um, in appropriate settings. Uh, when the firefighters went in to fight the blaze, they actually used water on a hydrogen peroxide fire um, because uh, some of the containers were improperly labeled, and that caused a second explosion, which killed even more people. Uh, right now, we're looking at 43 dead and a lot of people who are missing, a lot of them being the first responders and the firefighters who came in to fight the fire. Um, this is a situation that uh, was shocking to the nation. It took three days to put the fire out, and now the investigation is beginning. And what we're seeing now is uh, a lot of accusations of corruption. Again, a lot of accusations about industrial safety uh, not being enforced, the the uh, port authorities who are looking the other way, that kind of thing. It's all starting to feel very similar to what we saw to the Beirut port explosion uh, in 2020. And in fact, when we talked to one of our partners who has uh, a church network in Chittagong, that's what he was saying. He says that their partners were saying that it, it feels very similar to what happened, including the economic fallout that has occurred because the port has been shut down while everything is being put back together and while the investigation is underway. Um, there are people who are angry that the situation got out of hand to this extent um, because the damage is catastrophic in this region. Um, so right now, the the immediate port city uh, is without uh, its infrastructure. Um, there's, you know, needs for food and medicine and shelter for those who did survive. The hospitals are um, really running, uh, kind of burning the candle at both ends because they weren't prepared for the influx of the the injuries uh, that they were seeing. Um, so FMI is asking us to join them in praying. The church plant that they do have in Chittagong is making their way into the inner part of like ground zero um, to kind of help with the recovery process, try to help clean up, try to bring in some food aid uh, as well as medicine, anything they can do to be the hands and feet of Christ and really uh, take the opportunities to offer a cup of cold water in the name of Christ. Um, Bangladesh is a Muslim country, so it's not always something that's been very open to traditional uh, gospel work. And this is an opportunity for this church network to um, show, just kind of exemplify what sets believers apart when they follow Christ. Well, and I think in these sorts of countries, Ruth, that when I compare these kinds of disasters to maybe what I might see in, in more of a first world or a Western world situation, we hear numbers around rebuilding, like financial numbers around what it takes to rebuild something. And sometimes it's a billion dollars, sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 100. I admit that my eyes and, and my mind kind of just gloss over because the numbers get so large that I, I don't know how to process that. And yet it does seem like we have rebuilding abilities when we have these kind of catastrophic, uh, catastrophic events in the first world. But I'm guessing a place like Bangladesh doesn't necessarily have the ability to rebuild so quickly. Uh, that I can't really speak to. Um, Bangladesh has been vulnerable to the economic uh, upheaval that so many countries have been dealing with, as well as you know dealing with the fallout of COVID. Um, so they're feeling the the pinch, the economic pinch. Um, resources are expensive, as they are in any country. So uh, while they're dealing with um, kind of a recession type of economy, getting resources to rebuild uh, is going to be a little bit slower than normal. And because there are so many more hoops to jump through with this investigation, it could be a while before we see things starting to kind of return to normal.
Mm. Talking with Ruth Kramer of Mission Network News this morning. Ruth, uh, changing the topic to Tunisia now. It's another Islam-run country. We do see some political reforms happening there. Take us into this story. This is kind of an exciting story. Um, I had the opportunity to speak to a partner um, uh, who is focused on ministry in Tunisia not too long ago. Um, And he was telling us that uh, the president has charged a commission to rewrite the Constitution. Uh, And they're on a very short time frame to be able to do that. Uh, We're looking at uh, the committee rewriting a draft by June 30th. Then the people will vote whether or not they're going to approve the draft July 25th, and then elections will be held in December. So you're talking a whole sweeping set of reforms that are being promised. And the thing that is most interesting to me is that the guy who's heading up that National Commission on rewriting the Constitution said on Monday that he would present a draft that it's stripped of any reference to Islam because he says that it's uh, in an effort to prevent political extremism. Right now, the, the article of uh, the the first article of the Constitution um, says that it's a free, independent, and sovereign state. Islam is its religion, and Arabic is its language. That was rewritten in 2011 with the uh, Arab Spring uprising. So this is something I think is very interesting um, that they're going to take this move. Tunisia has been on uh, persecution watch lists before because in its history, there has been uh, quite a lot of pressure against Christians because of the national Islamic identity. But with these changes that are happening, uh, what you're seeing is a little bit more openness, a little bit even more protection for religious freedom. And our partners at the Middle East North Africa Leadership Center say that that's all um, good news. Uh, it's it's also allowing uh, space for equipping believers for gospel work. So it's one of the few places in the, in the MENA region where Christians can find small measures of safety as they continue to uh, educate themselves and prepare for ministry. Um, there's religious freedom, which is helpful for being able to start up um, uh, some small ministries and be able to go into other neighboring countries where things maybe not be so uh, uh, open uh, for for ministry centers. Um, there's a lot of prayer that needs to go into this because it could easily flip back the other way. This is very, <laughs> excuse me, this is very interesting because uh, I think when you're seeing a country being willing to take this step and take Islam out of its constitution, it could lead to other countries that are more moderate making the similar decisions. So uh, there's a lot to to wait and see about this, but this is a good first step. Yeah, it certainly is an interesting um, tension point between Christians and and people of the Islamic faith uh, in different parts of the world. That's Ruth Kramer again of Mission Network News. Ruth, we're going to step away for a moment. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the impact of the inflation and, and the rise in food prices on people in Kenya. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. We've been chatting with Ruth Kramer about some of the global headlines and and how Christians are experiencing their lives in other countries. And Ruth, we all are being impacted by these inflationary influences. It's it's hard for me to process what 8%, 9%, 10% per year means in the rise uh, of food prices. Gasoline prices are now averaging over $5 a gallon nationwide. Uh, a, a lot of Americans, not all, there's, a, there's a, a significant subset of Americans that this really is going to drive them deeper into poverty. But compared to other countries, um, this is really having a, a dramatic impact. And we're seeing the rise of prices specifically impacting Kenya. So take us into this story. 
Well, when we're looking at places like Kenya, we're talking more about the rural people who are going to feel the, the, the pinch the most. Um, their income is the most unstable. It is probably the smallest part of the income. So they're going to see that inflation rise uh, e e even more so than what the average person would see maybe in the urban city centers. Food is already expensive in Kenya. So they're seeing prices now go up uh, 20, 30 percent, in some cases 50 percent. And when you have an unstable income out in the rural areas where you're talking maybe a couple dollars a day, that's a huge uh, shift where you're going to be putting most of your resources in just trying to survive and just trying to deal with food issues. And now you have a food shortage that's predicted because of the Russia-Ukraine situation and the the loss of the grain that would be coming in uh, as, as an import. Um, so ministries are having to kind of plan ahead a little bit and try to put into place things to protect um, not only the ministry centers, but also uh, allow the the folks that are trying, they're trying to help the most uh, to have a sustainable source of either income or uh, food. And in this case, our partner, Kenya Hope, has been uh, working with uh, another partner on the ground to try to deal with the food issues. Um, they're trying to offset rising costs and make their programs a little bit more sustainable because they feed 1,800 children a day in their schools. Uh, so they need to have a ready source of, of grain uh, coming in. Right now, they're looking at uh, a, an agricultural project where they planted 22 acres of maize, that's corn and beans, um, maize being the corn part, but also the beans, uh, which are two of the staple ingredients uh, for what they serve in their feeding programs. And so that is one of the sustainable steps that they're, they're doing, as well as using the vocational nature of the agricultural program to be able to teach people skills to be able to continue to maintain this kind of thing. That's all, of course, hinging on whether or not they have the, the uh, water to be able to continue uh, nurturing the crops because of the, the droughts that are happening in that region. Um, but in this case, they're doing what they can to try to offset what they're seeing in the near future as being increasing food costs by having their own source of um, maize and beans. There's there's more that they're doing with that, with the vocational programs and the educational programs and things like that. But that's one of the key steps that they're making in 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 addition to watching where the budget's going and trying to find other sources of uh, supplies so that they can continue to maintain where they are with the, the church network that they're they're helping, as well as the schools. Um, this is obviously a challenge because with the inflation rates that are uh, changing kind of daily, in some of the uh, developing countries, uh, a sticking to a budget becomes extremely challenging. So continue to pray wisdom for the team at Kenya Hope. Um, pray for uh, a good rain because you need to have rain in order for these crops to grow. Um, continue to pray that the tools that they're sending to the, the program will get where they need to go and that uh, folks will learn what they need to learn so that they can see in the long run a cultivation not only of food, but also of ministry. Yeah, I confess, Ruth, that until the Russian and Ukrainian conflict war, that I didn't realize how much food was getting exported from, from such a flourishing place like Ukraine, where it's just so easy to grow food and then export it. There's so many countries in the world that are deeply impacted that, that even having 22 acres of, of corn and beans is, is quite a bit of, of food in some parts of the world, and not only in a in a um, Tunisia, but we see that in Ethiopia, that there's also some disruption in the food supplies. And and take us what's into what's happening here, because some churches are coming around some of this economic and agricultural disruption. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty messy in northern Ethiopia. Right now, uh, the UN uh, humanitarian agency basically is saying that 9 million people in this region need food assistance just to survive. Uh, it's a food crisis. There's a humanitarian issue that that's you know part of part of that issue because of the the conflict that is taking place, and there have been uh, several attempts at ceasefires that uh, well they get broken fairly quickly. So there's a ceasefire, then somebody breaks the ceasefire, and there's fighting again, um, and it, it's creating a situation where the NGOs are leaving. NGOs, being non-government organizations, are clearing out because they are being targeted by the rebels. Uh, to, for the supplies, uh, for black market kind of things. So the food aid and the humanitarian aid that was getting into the region, into Tigray, was temporarily disrupted because of all of these things that we're talking about. Uh, in addition to the natural uh, climate issues, now you've got a drought going on. It's just one thing after another for this region. So it has been a an uphill uh, battle to try to help people who are in this part of Ethiopia. Voice of the Martyrs Korea has a whole network of churches that they're working with, though. Um, they found out that there was a pastor who stayed in the area and was continuing to do gospel work, in spite of the fact that you had rebels running through the streets, you had all of these things that were happening. He stayed behind to do what he could to help. Um, and he was one of the few people who did so. And as a result, there were a lot of people who came to Christ. This guy managed to plant 11 new churches near Ethiopia's capital. And now that number has grown to 19 churches. So in spite of everything that's going on in uh, Tigray, you're seeing that God uh, is moving in this area. The Holy Spirit is moving. And it's a really encouraging kind of a situation just to see that uh, these these believers are being born in a, in a crucible, basically, and the light of Christ is what people are seeing through them. So continue to pray, um, not only for uh, these communities, um, we're praying for an end to war, we're praying for the faith of these Tigrayan Christians, um, and we're thanking the Lord that they are stout, stout of heart. Hmm. Ruth, I sometimes get a bit overwhelmed by just the sheer need that exists globally, especially when you surface some of what's happening around the world would you suggest to somebody that maybe they they take one specific need or issue, pray about that, ask God maybe are there ways in which we can intercede? Because we can't help everywhere. One person can't help everywhere, but collectively as believers we can. So is that just a real tangible step that individuals can take to say, I'm going to really think through and, and be part of an intercede in one situation? Yeah, you know, one, one of the things I tell our new writers when they come on board is pay attention to the stories that grab your heart. Because not every story is going to grab your heart. Um, ask God to lay something on your heart and then be ready for the answer. Be paying attention as he answers you because there are going to be things that you're more interested in following than other uh, stories. Uh, some people really are into stories that have impact on children's education, especially the refugees. And there's, there's just myriad stories that we have that we cover that are dealing with those kinds of issues. There are stories that we deal with on reaching the unreached um, or reaching um, folks who are in uh, Middle East context, Middle East, North Africa context. Um, there are folks that are dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Um, pay attention to the things that grab your heart when you listen to Mission Network News, when you're uh, looking at different stories, and then 
start doing a little bit of research. We try to put links in our stories that will let you know where we got some of our information, with whom we spoke. Um, the organization has contact information on each story as well as a call to action in terms of prayer, in terms of some of the needs. And then just kind of go from there. Once the stories are revealed to you, once that that thing that gets your attention, that grabs your heart, revealed to you, do a little bit more research and start praying. Uh, and then just be ready because you can imagine what God could do through you if you just said yes. Yeah, I love it. Great advice. Ruth, thanks for taking the time for all of the research that you and your organization does. Again, it's Mission Network News. It's a great website to go to catch some of the headlines that are happening around the world with Christians. Ruth, have a great rest of the day. Thanks, you too. We'll take a short break and wrap up Hour 1 of Mornings Without Carmen. Sure, appreciate the perspective that Ruth Kramer gives us. Uh, she is involved journalistically in all kinds of events that are happening globally that I probably would not know a lot about, but it also uh, just encourages me to think about how other brothers and sisters in our faith are experiencing their faith. And once we got the gremlins out of the soundboard, Paul, <laughs> you know, that we were able to continue that conversation. Yeah. Where, where does that phrase originate from because everywhere I've ever gone on radio and podcast, whether it be professional baseball, people's the work that they're doing, it, it seems like it's always gremlins that are in the soundboard. I don't know where we've come up with that phrase. I think it actually, I could be wrong about this, but I remember them talking in the early years of aeronautics and airplanes. If something went wrong, it's because of the gremlins. Or, yeah. I, it might be, I don't know. It may go way beyond that or way before that, but that's I remember a Bugs Bunny cartoon around that. That I, I, a lot of what I know, I know because of Bugs Bunny, <laughs> including classical music. I, I love classical music thanks to Bugs Bunny. I'm not even sure how to how to comment. <laughs> on it. Here's what I know: our Faith Radio family, and especially those of you that are part of Mornings with Carmen on a daily basis, we love to hear from you at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. You are sort of the crack research staff for Mornings with Carmen. So if you know anything about the origination of gremlins in the and in, in technology, we'd love to hear it. And it was a great hour of conversation despite that. Uh, certainly if you missed the first half of hour one, we talked with Tim Yearsley from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, and I just thought he did a great job yeah. charting out a future for how our faith is going to look. You're definitely going to go to myfaithradio.com and go to the Mornings with Carmen page and, and just hear that 15 to 18 minute interview. And of course, Ruth is always great too. And looking forward to hour two here in just a couple of minutes, we're going to be joined by Brandon Showalter of the Christian Post. Brandon and I are going to talk about two different topics that are right in the top of the news. One is what it means to be fully pro-life. And we'll also talk quite a bit about how the church seems to be finding a little bit more traction and how to minister to the LGBTQ community. So some conversations coming up in hour two of Mornings Without Carmen that you're not going to want to miss. It's Peter Kapsner filling in for today and delighted to be with all of you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.